time, everyone. We're going to continue our series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and before we dive into this week's message, it will be helpful rather to look at a reminder of where we started in the very first week on this series when we looked at the eternal truths, the themes that we see and really permeating throughout this letter. And so just a refresher, just a recap, uh, we looked at that this letter is going to lay out for us truths about our eternal identity. It's going to lay out for us truths about our eternal role. And we talked about the problems that arise when we confuse our temporary role, our role that we fill for however many years we're on this earth, with our eternal role and how that eternal identity needs to drive our understanding of these things. We also looked at the power of God is far more sufficient than any of our own weaknesses, and He is sufficient in all of these things. And these truths we're really going to see laid out very nicely in this part of Scripture. Because we have a tendency to overcomplicate things. Our minds have a tendency to fill in details and make things more complicated than they really are. I mean, anybody else do this or is this just me? So a few days ago, I went to put in my contacts. I have terrible vision. I went to put in my contacts. I pop them in. They go great. And my vision's still very blurry. And I cannot see clearly. And the clarity of vision that I'm used to having with my contacts is not there. And I'm starting, I mean, like I'm holding up the shampoo bottle. I'm checking it like, why can't I see with my contacts in? And my mind starts immediately going through, you're going blind. You're going blind. You have some sort of infection. You have something wrong with your eyes. Your contacts aren't going to help you. And my mind starts racing through all of these extrapolated scenarios of how my vision is completely failing me and I'm in deep trouble. And I'm starting to panic over this. And then I had the simple thought, hey, you and your wife use the same contact case or the same color contact case did you accidentally put in her contacts? So I swapped them out, I put in my contacts, I was like, oh, there, now I can see. Right, but there was that 10 second window where my mind was going to the absolute most overcomplicated, like you have some rare disease that took place overnight. The most unlikely scenario I am spiraling into in a matter of moments, and it was that, hey, slow down, what's the most simple answer to this? Did you just put in the wrong pair of contacts? I think we do that with our lives. I think we do that with our identity. I think we do that with our roles. We rush to overcomplicate things that really are pretty straightforward and simple. And so this chunk of 2 Corinthians, I believe, does a beautiful job of getting us to slow down and simplify things. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12. If you're able, if you would, please stand out of respect for God's word. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word that is timeless. Lord, in this time, we ask that we would continue to worship you with all of our minds, all of our hearts. May we know you better. May we be made to look more like Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So what is, what is one of the first things that we saw throughout that passage? Popped up several times. Going back to the themes that we looked at were present in this letter, this idea of eternal identity. If you caught it in that passage of Scripture, there were multiple points where Paul lays out, this is your eternal identity. Consider these verses. This is 2 verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 3.2 calls us a letter of recommendation. 3.6 calls us ministers of a new covenant. In three different places, Paul lays out, this is who we are. This is unassailable. This is unshakable. This is not determined by something you achieve or have done on your own. This is given to you by God as your identity. Do those sound like the ways we identify ourselves? If I meet you at a cookout, we're at a mutual friend's house, I meet you for the first time. Oh, hi, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Phil. Hi, I'm Tim. Right? What are we going to run through? What do you do? Where do you live? What do you like to do? Hi, I'm Sam. I serve as a pastor. I live on this street. I'm married. I have a kid. How many of you are going to say, oh, yeah, hi, I'm Sam. I'm a fragrance of an aroma. It's not how we describe ourselves. But this is what our identity is. And so when the Bible lays out this phrase that isn't something we use in everyday language, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is it saying? I want to understand this. What, what is he getting at when he calls us this? So you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to go back to when God lays out the standards of sacrifice and he starts to describe the sacrifices that his people make and offer him. 
And in Exodus 29, you see, then you shall take from their hands and burn them, on them being the sacrifices. Burn the sacrifices on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Leviticus 1.13, also talking about sacrifices, says, And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So when the Bible talks about pleasing aroma, when it uses this language, it's talking about how God responds to a sacrifice offered with the right heart, a sacrifice offered according to His standards. What we give the Lord. How does the Bible describe Jesus? As we continue through the narrative of Scripture, we come to Hebrews 13, to 12 For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. These sacrifices that are burned, that we looked at in the Old Testament, when they are burned, offer a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Hebrews now says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Ephesians 5 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This fragrant aroma that the Old Testament describes and attaches to a sacrifice offered to the Lord, the New Testament shows us that Jesus is the completion of that. He is the perfection of that. He is the ultimate sacrifice that is a fragrant aroma pleasing to the Lord. So then as we continue our own lives in Christ as a new creation, we see scripturally that we are the continuation, we're the extension, we are that aroma, or rather we are called to be, we are meant to be. Paul said it in his passage here in 2 Corinthians, we are a fragrant aroma to the Lord. What else do you see in the Bible? Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews 13. So we read in Hebrews 13, 11 and 12, how Jesus is that perfection of the sacrifice, that aroma to the Lord. Later on in that chapter, it says, Through Him, through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So when the Bible describes us as a fragrant aroma, as this scent He's reminding us, God is reminding us through His Word that our lives are meant to be a sacrifice for the Lord. Holding nothing back, offering Him what we have, giving Him our best, offering it with a pure heart, desiring that it would be that sacrifice with an aroma pleasing to God. This is our eternal identity. I mean, this is who the people of God are. This is who those, I mean, God describes us as the, the brothers and the sisters of Christ adopted into the family. So on our bad days, when we're tempted to think that God wants nothing to do with us, that God's not interested in us, remind yourselves that God in his word describes you as a fragrant aroma pleasing to him. And then let that call you to a higher standard of living, a holier standard of living. But this is our eternal identity, a fragrant aroma to the Lord. The next identity that you see in this passage was in verse, 
or chapter 3, verse 2. And he's talking and he's saying, you know, there are these false teachers, there's these opposition, or there's this opposition to my ministry, these opponents, and they're trying to criticize the work of this body. They're trying to criticize this body of believers in Corinth. And he says, no, you yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts. So he's talking to the people and he's saying, you want testimony to the truth of the gospel? You want evidence that this gospel we're preaching? Because remember when we looked at the history of Corinth, we talked about how Paul was preaching one gospel and his opponents were preaching a different gospel. And they were trying to poke holes in Paul's gospel. And they're saying, no, Paul's not teaching the truth. Paul says, no, you want evidence that we're preaching the truth? You want evidence that this gospel is the real gospel, that this Jesus is the real Lord? You yourselves, your lives are the letter of recommendation. Friends, this is meant to be our eternal identity, a letter of recommendation for the gospel. Barna, if you know the company Barna, Barna does all of their work on surveys, data collection, data summation. I get their bi-weekly update. Hey, here's a snapshot of some of the data of the church in America and the world's perception, the American cultural perception of the church. You want to know the number one reason, the recent survey that they did was for non-believers, people who say, I'm not a Christian, I don't go to a church, I have nothing to do with church, I'm not interested in church. And so they asked them, okay, why not? Why are you uninterested in the message of the gospel? Why are you uninterested in what the church has to say? Why are you uninterested in being part of the church? 42%, by far and away the largest margin, the next answer was in the 20s. So by far and away, the largest answer given by unbelievers for why they don't want to come into the church, why they don't want to hear the message of the church, why they don't want to associate with Christians, you know what the number one reason was? Hypocrisy of Christians. Why should I be interested in what you have to say when your life doesn't reflect it? We're meant to be a letter of recommendation. Joe Curry feels called into ministry. I received an email from our district office. He's listed you as a reference. Would you write him a letter of recommendation? Am I going to do Joe any favors if I'm like, he's all right. I'll hang out with him if I have to. I mean, sometimes he says something that makes sense. Yeah, sure, if you don't have any other options, why not go with Joe? Is that a good letter of recommendation? So Christian, is your life a letter of recommendation for the gospel? The way you conduct yourself, the way you behave, the way you interact with the world, the way you interact with non-believers, the way you interact with people who think differently from you, the way you interact with people who treat you wrongly. You disagree with me? I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm going to forgive you every chance I have. I mean, is our life a letter of recommendation to the veracity of the gospel? The power of the gospel, the strength of the gospel. Are we a letter of recommendation to be read by the world? We are. So the question is, are we a good letter of recommendation? This is our eternal identity. And then finally, in chapter 3, he also says that we are ministers of a new covenant. 
Wait a minute, I thought Sam was the minister. He's the one up there preaching. I thought Mario was the minister. I, I thought they were the ministers. No, that word minister is diakonos. That word means servant. It applies to all believers. It is not reserved for a select few to be servants of the gospel, to minister to the world around us. Consider these passages to understand this idea of ministers of a new covenant. This is Jeremiah chapter 31. This is God speaking in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Second Corinthians, this, this letter that we're currently in, when we get to chapter 4, when we get to chapter 5, we'll see again in two other places, Paul refers to all believers as ministers of the new covenant. So we're going to see this continue throughout this letter. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, the letter he's already written to this body of believers. And he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to him. The people in Corinth had a problem with favoritism and leadership. They had a problem with elevating the people and leadership to an improper place. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I'm... Paul says, no, what? we're the same. We're servants of God. We're servants of the gospel. We're servants of this covenant. We're each doing what's been assigned to us. So rather than wasting time worrying about, well, which human leader do we most closely associate with, recognize, no, that all leadership within the church should be the exact same servants of God, and that is no different from you all gathered here. Christians, we are called to be servants of the Lord. It's never been about us. It's never been about our individual position. It's about a body coming together and saying, I'm a servant, you're a servant, he's a servant, she's a servant. We are all here as servants of God, Amen. gathered together. This is our identity, ministers, diakonos of the new covenant. So then as such, as servants, what's our role? What is our eternally given role? I don't care if you work with your hands. I don't care if you work on computers. I don't care if you're retired, if you're stay at home. Whatever you do, that is a temporary role. Within that temporary role, what is your eternal role that you have been assigned by the Lord? Well, to minister. What does he say in this passage that we looked at in these verses? 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, always leads us in a victory parade, always leads us in victory, in rejoicing, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. 
We are meant to be that fragrant aroma. We are meant to be that sacrifice. And then in this passage, he says, through us, he spreads that knowledge. That's the royal us. That's all of us. He goes on and he says to both believers and non-believers. So we have as servants, as diakonos, as ministers of the new covenant, we have a responsibility to fellow believers to spread this knowledge, to spread this aroma. Paul, writing in Philippians 4, says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. What's going on? Paul found himself in a jam. Paul found himself in need of funds. Paul found himself in need of help, in need of support. In his ministry efforts, in his missionary efforts, Paul needed help. The church provided it. The body of believers in the area provided it. Paul says, thank you. He acknowledges this. He acknowledges the necessity of this. And then how does he describe this? He says, I have received the gifts you sent, a fragrant, we've talked about that word already, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. So when the Bible says that we are a pleasing aroma, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him, part of that is to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. A few weeks ago, we looked at that question of what could you do to build up the body this week? What could you do to encourage your brothers and sisters this week in Christ? Not what will they do for me, not I need from you, but what can I do for you? He lays out that part of our eternal role is to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage them. And then also to unbelievers. Acts 8, 1 and 4 and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. We have looked at this passage many, many, many times because I love these verses. I love these verses for the mission of the church, for the responsibility of the individual believer. What comes next? Persecution arises in Jerusalem, and all were scattered except who? Anybody remember? The apostles, the leadership. Everyone is scattered except the leadership. The leadership remains stuck in Jerusalem. Everyone else, all of you, get scattered outside of Mansfield. Mario and I and the elders, we're stuck here in Mansfield, but the rest of you get scattered throughout Richland County. And then what's it go on? And it says... It says, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God among unbelievers. The church is missing terribly on its mission as long as every man, woman, and child does not accept personal responsibility for spreading the gospel. The church functions best. The church functions as it is designed. The church functions as God has purposed it to in our eternal roles when every individual member of the body accepts a personal responsibility for spreading the gospel, for spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. This is our eternally given role. What else does he say in this passage? When he's looking at verse or uh, chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, you are our letter of re recommendation. How does he conclude that thought? He says, you are our letter of recommendation to be read by all. This is not something we keep hidden. This is not something we keep for ourselves. 
this is for the purpose of sharing it, the purpose of spreading it. Please excuse me. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking in the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head of the body, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly... So all of these verses to say that how we are to function, what we are to do, what our eternal role is, speaking the truth in love, sharpening one another, when every individual member, when every part of the body is functioning as it is designed to, what is the result? Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Whose responsibility is it to grow the church? Mine? Everybody's. The people preaching, everybody's. The people in an elected position of leadership, everybody's. It is everyone's responsibility to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So as long as we show up to the gathering of believers, as long as we show up to the corporate service asking, what are you all going to do for me? We're missing the point. We are designed to function in specifically given roles and specifically given places so that we build ourselves up in love. Well, uh, Mike knows one of my favorite sayings is goose doesn't try and be maverick. Maverick doesn't try and be goose. Right? They're not in the cockpit squabbling over who gets to fly that day. Maverick knows he's maverick. Goose knows he's goose. And they function within those roles and that's what makes it work. We're talking about Top Gun in case it's, you're missing it. A very, very philosophical educational film. But Maverick knows he's Maverick. Goose knows he's Goose. My right hand doesn't try and behave like my left foot. The body is designed so that each part, when functioning like it's designed, makes the body build itself up in love. This is our eternally given role. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. So Ephesians, talking about how we relate to one another... Continuing this idea of we spread the fragrance of knowledge to both believers and unbelievers. If in Ephesians you have how we spread the fragrance to one another and build one another up. In Colossians you have how we spread the fragrance to unbelievers. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Once again, spreading the fragrance internally, externally among fellow believers, among unbelievers. This is our eternally defined role. Whether you're a plumber, a welder, a doctor, a teacher, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, whatever you do in your earthly temporary role, your eternal role as someone who spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ drives all of that. And I realize that can be daunting and intimidating. So I want to quickly just look at what are some practical ways to do this? This is all well and good. You can lay out the theology of what I'm supposed to do. How do I actually do it? You're used to speaking, Sam. This is easy for you. This is comfortable for you. Not me. How do I get the ball rolling? Okay. Simple. Hey, man, you're my friend. We work together. We hang out. Our kids are on the same team. Have you ever had one of those like aha moments in life when things just clicked and made sense? What's one of your biggest aha moments in life? You know what we all like to do? 
talk about ourselves. I've never asked anyone this question and they're like, mm, no, haven't had one. We love to share this moment that was pivotal for us. We love to share these times when, oh man, things clicked, things changed, my whole world blew up. Like, hey, what's one of your biggest moments in life? What's one of your biggest aha moments in life? We love to talk about that. I'm telling you, people do. Try it, test it, you'll see. But then we've been raised in a polite society, mostly. So what is the almost immediate reaction from people? How about you? If I ask you, hey, how are you doing? Well, how, do you, how are you gonna reply? I'm doing well, and you? Yes, you your coworker on Monday. Hey, how was your weekend? It was good, and yours? We've been conditioned to flip the question back on the person asking us. So if we start the conversation with, tell me about one of your biggest aha moments, Tell me about a, a massive life-defining moment for you or a small life-defining moment. Tell me about something significant in your life. Odds are, maybe not always, but odds are they're going to finish and they're going to say, how about you? Oh, man, I loved hearing that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. You know, for me, I think one of the biggest moments was when, when the gospel finally clicked, when I finally understood who Jesus was. What? That's a great, easy way to get the conversation started. Romans 6.23, I can't memorize whole chunks of the Bible. I can't memorize 10, 12 verses. My memory's not that good. My mind's not that strong. I struggle with this. Okay, memorize one verse, two phrases, three phrases, but the one's kind of a compound. If you have a napkin, if you have a placemat, you're at a restaurant, you're at work, grab a whiteboard, grab whatever, and just do this diagram, Romans 6.23. Start with the far left, three words, wages, sin, death. What are wages? Oh, uh, what you earn. Yeah, great, good answer. What's sin? Maybe they don't know how to define sin. Okay, sin is anything other than the perfect holiness of God. Sin is falling short of God's glory. Okay, what's death? Oh, death's easy, death's the end of life. Death is final, death is terminal, death, you know, right? Good, okay, you defined all three of those words. Well, now you move on to the second chunk and you write three new words across from the first three words. Across from wages, you write gift. Across from sin, you write life. Across, or, uh, across from sin, you write God. Across from death, you write life. Ask him again, okay, how would you define these words? What's a gift? Well, if wages are something you earn, gift is something you're just given, right? Okay, sin, incomplete holiness, God, complete holiness. Death, death, life, life. You've got three opposites. All right, hey friend, which side do you think you're naturally on? If sin is anything other than complete perfection, and I'll go first, I know for me, my life started on the left side of that column. Like of these two columns, I began life on the left. The wages of my sin were death. Through my imperfection, through my lack of holiness, I earned death. If they're honest, they'll admit they're on that side too. But since you went first, they don't have to feel guilty about it. Since you went first, they don't have to feel ashamed about it. Okay, so then how do we get to the right side? How do we get to gift God life? There's only one answer. Jesus. And now you have one verse that presents the gospel. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That fits on a napkin. That fits on the corner of your notebook page. Like, that's a great way to present the gospel. To spread that fragrance of knowledge. Speaking of the gospel, who's heard that phrase, the gospel, before? Yeah, you've heard the gospel before? What's it mean? I mean, summarize the entirety of Scripture in 30 seconds. Ooh, I don't know if I could do that. I couldn't walk people through that. Okay. So you know the gospel. You know the word gospel. If you can spell gospel, you can present the entirety of Scripture in 30 seconds. Don't believe me? You know I'm setting you up? Gospel. G, God created us to be in fellowship with him. This is Genesis 1. O, our sin separates us from God. This is Genesis 3. S, sin affects everyone and we cannot solve this problem by ourselves. This is Genesis 4 through the end of Malachi. This is the rest of the Old Testament. P, paying the price for our sin, Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. This is the Gospels, what we refer to as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. E, everyone who believes in Jesus alone will receive eternal life. This is Acts through Jude. L, life eternal that begins now and continues forever, Revelation. If you can spell Gospel, you can walk someone through it in 30 seconds. Hopefully they'll have questions and you get to expand that conversation. G-O-S-P-E-L. I'm called to be a minister of the new covenant. I'm called to be someone who spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. I'm not good at it. I struggle with it. I don't know how to begin it. We just gave you three ideas. If you want help with them, call me. We'll work on them. But let's actually go after what we are called to do. Let's actually pursue who we are called to be. This still sounds scary, Sam. I'm not good at this. I get nervous. You say it's easy, spell one word. I won't remember those letters. I won't remember what, like I'm not good at this. This is too much for me. This is too hard for me. I can't do this. You can't do it on your own. You're absolutely right. I cannot do this on my own. Our elders cannot do this on their own. We are never meant to try this on our own. What is the other theme we've looked at for this letter? The sufficiency of God in all things. The power of God in all things. And in this passage of 2 Corinthians, we saw that exact same truth time and time again. Chapter 2, verse 14. God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Your favorite pastor of all time is not at the head of the victory parade. Your favorite author, your favorite Christian speaker, the person who led you to Christ, your parents, your grandparents, whoever, your favorite Christian on this planet is not at the head of the victory parade. God leads us in triumphal procession. Consider these verses in Colossians. 
This is Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgotten us all our, or forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You and I can't do a thing that happened in those passages for ourselves. We cannot disarm sin on our own. We cannot disarm evil on our own. We cannot cancel our own debt of sin. We cannot forgive the record that stands against us. God's power, God's sufficiency dwarfs our deficiencies in every way. Consider chapter 2, verse 16 in the letter of 2 Corinthians, where Paul asks, he asks the question that so many of us are thinking. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for this? Exodus 3, all the way through the first half of chapter 4. We're not going to read two chapters right now. This is the story of God calling Moses to serve him, to be a minister to give his life for the calling that God placed before him. And in chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses said, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at talking to people. I can't do this. How does God respond to Moses in chapter 4? He says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I don't know what to say to my coworker. The Holy Spirit does. And he's the one in charge. I don't know what to say to my neighbor, my, my friend, my family member. God does. And he's the one who made your mouth and your mind. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 in 2 Corinthians. We will reread these verses. He says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I want to present a very stark reminder here. Next time... The enemy whispers, you are not sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. God shouts, I made you sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. So then the question is, whose voice are we going to listen to and believe? Because when I repeat that I can't do this, I am choosing to ignore when God says, I have made you sufficient to do this. When I choose to echo what the enemy says, that I'm not good at this, I don't know the words, I don't know what to say, I am choosing to believe what the enemy says over what God says when he says, no, you are not sufficient in yourselves when you claim as anything coming from us, but your sufficiency, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. The power of the Holy Spirit in all of this is undeniably woven throughout every verse of this letter. Consider Judges chapter 6. This is the story of Gideon. If you're familiar with the story, great. If you're not familiar with the story of Gideon, Israel was being plagued by enemies that they couldn't possibly match in number or size. Israel is facing a problem that they don't know what to do with. 
And God appears to Gideon. He says, I'm going to use you to bring about victory. And Gideon said to the Lord, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon says, I'm the runt of the litter. I have no authority. I have no platform. I, I'm the worst possible choice for this. I'm a nobody. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Jeremiah 1 Verses 4 to 10. This is the prophet Jeremiah when he's called by the Lord. I mean, if you think you're the first person to be like, I can't do this on my own, read the Bible. Everyone we name our kids after said this first. Jeremiah 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God appears to Jeremiah and he says, I chose you. From the beginning of time, I knew you. I picked you. I set you aside. I consecrated for you for this. I appointed you to this. And Jeremiah says, whoa, that's pretty cool. I'm all in. No, Jeremiah says, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For all whom you go, I send you and you shall go. He says, whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my, mouth, or my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Jeremiah lists out, here are the reasons why I can't possibly fulfill this calling. And God says, what? No. I dwarf all of that. I supersede all of that. That's not a valid excuse. I know these things about Jeremiah, about you, Jeremiah. I appointed you. I consecrated you. I am with you. I will put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was never meant to do this on his own. Gideon was never meant to do it on his own. If you read Ezekiel 1 to Ezekiel 3, it's the exact same thing with Ezekiel. Two of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament, two of the biggest books in the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, surely each of them start off with confidence. Surely each of them start off saying, yeah, you're right, you have called me to this, I'm ready for it. No, they each start off with saying, I can't do this, I'm not good enough for this. I, no, you got the wrong guy. God, you've got the wrong person. This, no, this, no, 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 this is not going to work out well. And God says, it's not about you. It's not about your self-sufficiency. You were never designed to be self-sufficient. My power is perfect for you. This is a theme throughout this letter, and Paul reminds us of it in this passage time and time again. Finally, as we consider all of this, our eternal identity, our eternally given role, and the power of God in all of it. Time to ask someone to be brave. Who remembers Acts 1.8 that we spent multiple weeks memorizing and learning? Does anybody remember Acts 1.8? Bobby does. power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. 
That's what it's all about. It's not about our own power. It's not about our own idea of what we should do with our time. It's not about who we think we are or who the enemy tries to convince us we are. It's about who God says we are and what he has called us to do. This is what Paul is getting at. This is our eternal identity. This is our eternal role. Don't overcomplicate things. Don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't make it messier than it has to be. When you wake up and you wonder, who am I? As a believer, this is who you are. When you wake up and you wonder, what am I supposed to do? This is what you're supposed to do. Let's get back to the basics. Let's keep it simple. So this week, as we consider these things, let's read Ezekiel 36 and Romans 12. Let's continue to work on, on knowing, on learning, on internalizing Acts 2.42. And then a simple reflection question. As you consider everything we talked about, a question that I can't answer for you, you're the only, your spouse can't answer this for you. Maybe your spouse can provide some insight based on observations, but the only person who can answer this question for you is you. What do you give greater attention to? Your eternal identity and your eternal role? or your temporary identity and your temporary role. The way you invest your time, the way you invest your energy, the way you invest your thoughts, are you more focused on who you are eternally or who you are temporarily? Let's keep it simple. Let's be eternally minded. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you have called us to be. Thank you that you are sufficient in all these things. We know we are not on our own. And so we praise you for your grace, your mercy, your patience with us. We ask that you would continue to sanctify us as your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.